Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have two very special guests. Uh, one is somebody who I talked to back on April of 2019 about her excellent true crime book titled Free to Kill uh, about the serial killer Larry Eiler. Her name is Jera Lind Kolarik. And I just interviewed one of her friends, Andy Schwartz, about her new book about Jeffrey Dahmer. And this book, it was originally published in 1992 currently has 66 five-star reviews on Amazon in the U.S. And this is not Geraldine's first book. She's also published I Am Kane and also Prisoners of Fear. And she has an update, and that's why we brought on coroner Scott McCord to kind of give us an update on stuff that uh, has happened very recently. So welcome to the show, both Geraldine and Scott. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Bill. I really thank you for having me on here. There is, this is a book that never ends. I mean, the updates on it, uh, you know, usually you write a book and the book comes out and that's it, the end of the story, you know. Killer's caught, killer dies or something like that. But Free to Kill uh, is an ongoing story. Um, what makes it very remarkable is that we have a couple of unidentified bodies out there. And uh, Larry Eiler was a homosexual serial killer. So he was gay himself, and he would go out and he would look for other gay men or other men that he suspected may be gay, drug them, and then take them out to rural areas and uh, kill them, knife them to death, and sexually molest them and have them try to perform type of sexual acts on him, and then he would kill them. And uh, a lot of the young men were male prostitutes or drifters or hitchhikers, unknowns in the world. And... We have, a, I got a phone call in 20, 2009 from a man named Scott McCord, who is a Newton County coroner. And um, he said to me that uh, you've written a book, Free to Kill. And I remember this is many years ago. Free to Kill first came out in uh, 1990 and 1992. And Eiler died in 1994. And when Eiler died, he confessed to all the murders in the book. But there were bodies still unidentified. And uh, what Scott did was he used the forensics and DNA of today's world and the forensics of today's world to identify bodies that were there from 1983. And uh, first, the story of Free to Kill is a story uh, that I helped break with when I was with Channel 7 Eyewitness News. I was the assignment editor. And on the desk, uh, part of my assignments of, I would do beat checks of an old time journalist. And I would call coroner's offices and I would say, any new cases, anything new. And in 1982, I was calling my coroner up in Kankakee in Illinois. And he says, you know, we got this unusual body that we found. And it's, I said, what do you mean unusual body? He says, you know, it's a young man with multiple stab wounds about 30 stab wounds, and the pants are partially pulled down, pulled across the field, no identification, maybe drug-related. But I don't know, there's something strange about this. And so they had no identity or anything, so I kept the notes on it. And then uh, he, when I was doing another beat check, he says, oh, it came up. We know the name of this guy. And uh, he says, male prostitute out of Chicago. And then all of a sudden I saw bodies coming up in Indiana. A few months later, there was a young man that came up unidentified. And another one came up, a male prostitute, 
from Chicago. And uh, I thought, oh my God, it's, this is kind of unusual. It's like somebody's picking up these young men from Chicago and uh, killing them. And if they're gay, maybe it's somebody that it's homophobic and is killing these guys. A lot of rage. And all of a sudden I found out that there was a task force looking at as many as 20 murders in Indiana. And then on October 16th, uh, 1983, there were four unidentified bodies found in Newton County. Channel 7 really wasn't too eager to do a story about a homosexual serial killer. They said, Jer, we, we got to have somebody tell us more about this and everything. I mean, we can't just go with a story like this. And I was collecting video from my TV stations, Wish Station in Indianapolis and things like that. And um, we had three murders up in Lake County, Illinois, of young men that were found, multiple stab wounds. And on um, August 21st, uh, 1982, we found a body of a young man named Ralph Calise. And we knew it was Ralph Calise because he found his ID multiple stab wounds. And I knew that there was a task force in Indianapolis. So I know the sheriff, Mickey Babcock, and I called him and I says, Mickey, I think this is a serial killer that has been operating out of Illinois and Indiana. Maybe it got too hot for him in Indiana. So that's why he's going up towards Wisconsin with his bodies in Lake County. And uh, he said, Jer, you stick to your job as a reporter. I'll stick to my job as a cop. And I said, well, here's the phone number of the task force. And he called me that night and he said, Agatha Christie, you have one heck of a story. And that's what happened with Eiler. And Eiler was arrested for the Ralph Calise murder when an Indiana police officer um, saw two men coming out of a ditch up there in Lowell, Indiana. He ran the license and saw that this is a man who's a suspect in a number of serial killings. So he handcuffed him, brought him in, seized the pickup truck, found a knife in it, found boots that had blood on them, but he violated his constitutional rights. So the all the evidence on the Ralph Calise case was impounded and suppressed, and they could not could not charge him with the Ralph Calise murder, even though he was a suspect in 23 murders. They had to set him free, and he was freed to kill. That's where he got the name from Mickey Babcock looking at me and saying he's free to kill. It's a matter of time before he kills again. And then what happened was that in 26 and uh, 19, I'm getting all these years mixed up. In 1986, on August 21st, a body of a young man is found in Chicago, Danny Bridges, cut up in various pieces and put into a dumpster on a Rogers, behind the Rogers part, apartment. Larry Eiler is arrested and charged with the murder of Danny Bridges and sentenced to life in jail and uh, sentenced not to life in jail, excuse me, sentenced to death. So his attorney wanted to try to get him out of death row when Free to Kill came out and said that there was an accomplice, a professor from Indiana State University, Professor Dr. Robert Little, who was always around Eiler and helped him in killing these young men. And he was a gay man from the head of the Department of Library Science. So Eiler named him as an accomplice and confessed to a murder where I brought out a lot of evidence in Indiana. And um, Stephen Agin, 
And what happened was that Eiler testified in court and named his professor, and all of a sudden, Free to Kill, a little book, hardcover book that came out in Chicago became a nationwide bestseller because it was on Nightline, I was on Newsweek, uh, we are in uh, all of the stations, um, Entertainment Tonight, everybody. And uh, then Avon walked in and released a paperback copy of Free to Kill with the updates about Eiler's confessions and everything. And uh, the book sold over a half a million books. Not, not bad for your first book. And sold also in Europe and France and Italy and in in Spanish and in German. So that's the story of Free to Kill. And then when Eiler died in, uh, in 1994, he confessed to all the murders in Free to Kill. But he didn't know the names of some of the victims. And that's where people like Scott McCord, when we turn this over, continues the story and what he did with using modern forensics today. Scott? Hi, Geraldine. Uh, thanks, Bill, for having me on. Uh, I'm probably not going to be quite as colorful as, as Geraldine is, but um, Geraldine and I met, well, we've never actually met, but but we met by phone back in 2009. And I took office as coroner in 2008. And when I took office, um, I inherited the skeletal remains of, of these two boys. And they were in, in bankers boxes that were labeled with victims three and victim four. Uh, what what jurisdiction to, was that, Scott? Newton County. Thank you. Newton County, Indiana. Thank you. Uh, I had no clue what what these bones went to, what, you know, nothing, except a small piece of paper inside of one of them that had a what ended up being a state police case number. And I had called the state police and, and had them reference it. Uh, and they, they came back with, you know, well, it's it's a Larry Eiler case. This case is closed. Why are you interested? I said, because I have the skeletal remains and which that that sparked some interest with them uh, throughout, you know, throughout some digging, uh, trying to find more information on the case. I stumbled across Freed to Kill and, and Gerald, the name Geraldine Kalorak. And so it was a cold call to Geraldine that, that really started this whole train rolling from my end. Uh, she talked to me for a good, a, a good hour, probably longer than that. Um, seems like time kind of passes by the older we get. Uh, but you know, she gave me the, the history of, of, uh, Larry Eiler. Um, and I, I guess she was kind of a motivating factor in, in one of the, the many motivating factors in trying to, to locate uh, the identity of these boys. Uh, they, they were just. They were basically forgotten. There, I actually had three. I had two boys and a girl. The girl was was found back in 1988, um, and we've identified her through DNA. And then uh, it was it was getting to the point where I was I was ready to throw my hands up and and say, you know, no more. I'm I'm done. Uh, in 2019, I reached out to a group called the DNA Doe Project. You know, we'd heard all of this stuff about DNA and how it works and We've used NamUs and, and, and gotten the uh, DNA into their system, and it just kept coming up with nothing. Uh, the DNA Doe Project, uh, I shipped them the DNA. Well, I had the DNA released from University of North Texas, and they ran with it. And literally, af after they got it, after they had reprocessed the DNA, again, DNA is, 
is something that I don't understand a lot about, but uh, they had to reprocess it uh, and and uploaded it into GEDmatch. And within a matter of, of literally within a matter of hours, uh, they were calling me saying, we've got a positive ID. And how did they extract the DNA from this, these kind of remains? Do you know? I, I again, I don't understand how DNA how how DNA works. I know that I shipped uh, to the University of North Texas. I shipped the lower the lower jaw, and um, I believe it was a femur from each of the boys to them, and and they they're the ones that did the extraction. And was it true? Wasn't there like a burial pit? Like the bodies were buried together? Is that correct? Is that correct, Gerald? Well. Except for one, an African American. All the white people were buried together inside the barn. And he was buried outside the barn. And I know from uh, DNA, that's why they needed the bones, because they had to do a chemical analysis in taking something out of the bones to help them with the DNA. I mean, DNA can be determined <clears throat> from a hair sample, a hair sample, uh, you know, personal toothbrushes, things like that, saliva, and that's why they needed those bones. Even as old as they were, Scott, those bones were what really helped them to chemically do an analysis and break down the DNA. And so that well, DNA, I'm sorry, please continue. Well, we, we were fortunate with, with this that, um, that the, the, the family tree DNA uh, and I, I'm, I'm using that as a reference, not not a name, because there's actually family tree DNA uh, group out there. But we, we were fortunate that that these uh, that people had uploaded their DNA into like the ancestry uh, ancestry.com, 23andMe. Uh, there's there's so many different uh, agencies out there or companies that that do this. Uh, the main one that that seems to work is GEDmatch. But with with the, the, the boy I called Brad, uh, I had given him all names uh, early on. I had Adam, Brad, and Charlene, A, B, and C, uh, because I thought if they have names, they're, they're going to be harder to forget about. You know, and put a name to them, they're, they're now a person. And once we, you know, once we made a match on there, I mean, it, it came back as, as 100%. There was, there was a lot of times it's, it's a lot of tedious work of narrowing down, you know, first cousin twice removed, and then they work backwards and then work forwards again. Uh, this one was was very straightforward. I mean, as soon as it was uploaded, it was it was boom. We know we know exactly who he is, and he ended up being a young man who was picked up in Chicago, uh, which that was totally off from what I was guessing. But you know, it, it's a guessing game when when you're dealing with unidentifieds. Uh, but he was uh, he was picked up in Chicago. Larry brought him down here and just like Gerilyn had said, drugged him and, and took him to the, his, his killing site in Lake village, uh, which had a barn. Uh, and, and it, when the, the pictures that were from it, that I saw, uh, because I obviously wasn't the corner back in the eighties, uh, were, were quite macabre. And, and he had, this, this was the perfect setting for a serial killer. It was, it was an abandoned farmhouse. And the barn sat several hundred feet off the roadway, so he could pull in there and he, and he could take his time, which is exactly what he did. Um, and he, he would stab him to stab the, the, the young men to death and then take them out and bury him. And he, like Geraldine said, he had buried the three white boys 
uh, side by side, and and then the the the, the black boy, uh, which is Adam, uh, was was buried. I think they said it was forty feet away from the others. And so, once you got the positive uh, match, what happened from there? What happened next? It was it was just a matter of reaching out to that family, um, and we did reach out. We reached out to a sister, um, and. Um, we, we dealt primarily with the sister because the mother who was still alive. Uh, and I think that, that that's an important thing to remember that, 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 you know, here, this woman was, she's frail. She's, uh, she's in her eighties and, uh, you know, she's woke up every morning for 37 and a half years wondering where her son was at, you know, is he ever going to come home? Uh, so my girlfriend and I, uh, decided we were going to actually deliver her son to her. Uh, so we we loaded the the skeletal remains up in in my car. Uh, we I had purchased a casket, uh, an infant casket, and we we took him down there. And the funeral home down there, uh, obviously, we have to coordinate everything with funeral homes. Uh, the funeral home down there had basically donated a uh, full size casket so that nobody would ask questions. And the day we arrived there was the day they were going to do the funeral, so everything looked quote unquote normal. Uh, you know, we, we found, we found the young man and, and got him home and it ended up the, you know, I, I named him Brad, uh, and ended up, ended up, his name was John Brandenburg. John Brandenburg. So the family was able to kind of lay him to rest, correct? The, the family was, uh, yeah, they, they've, they got some closure. Uh, you know, like mom said, she woke up every, every day for 37 and a half years wondering is, is Johnny ever going to come home? Those are her words. Uh, and and his brother we we had the opportunity to meet his brother and his sister um wonderful people uh in a, in a terrible time you know it was even though 37 and a half years had passed uh it was like it was like opening a fresh wound but yet i i think at least i hope it, it brought some comfort to him and i hope we can one day solve the murder on the other man the african-american man probably the same thing the young man that was picked up in chicago who has disappeared and his family's wondering what's happening to him and you know this this story takes a different approach let me tell you uh roland emmerich as we all know is a very famous producer hollywood producer he did uh he's one of the top 15 producers in hollywood and you know he did independence day he did the patriot uh, Midway, and now he's got a new movie coming out. He's he's a gay he's a gay producer. He's an openly gay man, and he was looking for a story about a homosexual serial killer. Well, when Free to Kill came out in 1992, we had a lot. We had Paramount Pictures that was interested in it, but the idea of a man as a serial killer of men and killing men, a homosexual serial killer was often taboo, you know, and uh, nothing ever came of it. But now he is a very big advocate for uh, the gay and lesbian transgender uh, communities. And he wants to bring this out. And they have bought the option to free to kill. Wow. Uh, they bought it about two years ago. And it was supposed to start production in 2020, but because of uh, what would happen with the pandemic. They couldn't come out here to Chicago 
to look at any sites and they plan to do taping here in Chicago and people from Chicago will definitely be there. And we have a police officer, Dan Collin, from uh, the Lake County Sheriff's Office that's going to be my main character in there. And uh, there's even going to be uh, a woman actress portraying me. I said, make sure she's sexy and young and wears high heels and a dress. That's perfectly me. But she's got to have a trench coat. And uh, so it's going to be interesting. And we're looking forward to this. And uh, they have a script that is being written right as we speak now. And now it's they're starting to put it together. No, and that's great. Congratulations. Do you know if they have any actors attached to the uh, project? No, I don't think so yet. They're doing the script, but the script is definitely based on the book. Awesome. It's definitely based on Free to Kill. And I told them that I have this update with Scott McCord. So, Scott, I imagine they're going to have some hunky guy to play you as a coroner talking are, to me in that phone call. So there you go. You guys are going to be famous. Hopefully they'll use your real names, right? Oh, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I, I don't know. I guess Gerilyn is such an unusual name. They may use it. Who knows? But it's. I'm happy that someone is interested. It's not just for me or anything like that or sell books. It's the idea of bringing to light that men can become victims of serial killers. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Bill, that was the whole purpose of me writing Free to Kill. It was the fact that we had all these young men that died out there. And then when Danny Bridges was uh, killed and everything, there was another young man, David Block, that was discovered afterwards. And I was told at Channel 7, just let it go, Jer. They got him on Bridges. And I remember saying, you know, we have 23 young men out there whose families don't know what happened to their sons. They know that they were killed, but they don't know the story. They need closure. Someone has to tell the story of these young men. And I was very lucky that I had two mothers. I had Ralph Kalisa's mother uh, working with me, and I had Danny Scott McNeve's mother working with me because they wanted closure. They wanted they wanted people to know that their sons were not male hookers, that their sons were guys that were hitchhikers or down on hard luck selling drugs or whatever, but were picked up and then killed. And uh, it was good to bring closure. And Kathleen Zellner, we all know her from uh, the Wisconsin case. Well, I forgot the name of that. Making a murder? Making of a murder, right. I mean, she became famous because of Free to Kill, because when the book came out, she contacted me and wanted to meet with me in private. And uh, I'll be honest, the cops had me wired wow. when I met with her. Yeah, because it was like, why would the lawyer of a serial killer want to meet privately with me? Uh, she was interested in all the stuff that I had gathered, because remember, these are all open murders. And it would take her forever and ever, and she didn't have the subpoena power. And as a news person, I had police reports. I had everything. I had interviews that would help her in getting information on the murders that she could try to get an accomplice. She wanted to show that Dr. Little was an accomplice in at least three or four murders, and he was an accomplice in the Danny Bridges murder. And if she could prove that, then he'd get his death sentence overturned. See, so there was a motive to that. And uh, 
it was interesting. I met with Kathleen Zellner uh, in a bank building in an office in downtown Chicago, and and I was wired. And uh, we had, you know, the police says, if you don't come out, we're going to come in after you, you know. And um, wow, that's incredible. It was it was really interesting. It was a nice meeting. I got a free cup of coffee out of it, but uh, and uh, I really didn't trust her, and she didn't trust me. So we, we played a game of cat and mouse, and. Uh, but she really wanted to get him off of death row. And that's why he confessed to that murder. And then when Eiler died of AIDS in 1994, all the TV stations came wanting to do an update. And I said, you know, I know that she had him do all these confessions that she wanted to bring forth to name an accomplice. So now her attorney client privilege is broken. She doesn't have to worry anymore, he's dead. She should do the right thing and hold a news conference and clear the murders. And that's exactly what Kathleen Zellner did. So she did that. And did she did was little ever conclusively implicated in the murder? Little little was found not guilty in the Stephen Hagen case and he was set free. And there were no other cases against him. Wow. Uh, only the ones that Kathleen Zellner and Eiler claimed that he was an accomplice in. And so we just, don't know whatever happened to Dr. Little, but uh he was let go from the university and I imagine his whole life was topsy turvy. From that moment on i think he died i think he died i think i remember looking him up uh, about a year ago and i found an obituary and he i mean this was at the height of the aids kind of epidemic too right the oh, late yes. 80s absolutely. early 90s yeah. absolutely absolutely wow so did, would uh, what are the kind of effects i mean did you ever follow up with a lot of the families i mean it did how did they i mean at that time there really probably wasn't the internet for them to get together or kind of uh, a lot of the families got together at the news conference that Kathleen Zoner had because she invited the families there, and uh, it was closer for them. And I even did. Uh, Wilma McNeve and Carmen Pauly even went with me on talk shows. We went to New York on Maury Povich show. Maury Povich was different back then. They didn't throw chairs at each other, and the Donahue show, show and things like that. And we got to meet some of the families, but it was hard on them because, you know, these were families, often very poor families. Um, you know, sons were were on the street and uh, it was very sad for them. And, you know, it showed that their sons could become victims of a serial killer. Right. And it's how they died is what bothered a lot of the families. Yeah, pretty macabre, just like uh, Scott said. Very, very sad stories. And do you think, I mean, how has that per perception changed from back then to the present? I mean, uh, do you think just because the culture has changed, it's, this is more acceptable to talk about? or what Well, when, when Free to Kill came out, one of the big things that I insisted that Avon, when it came out paperback, is that when I go to every time, and I mean, I went, I went on a four-month book tour, I mean, all over the United States. And I tell you, everybody, you think it's vaping an author, poppycock, forget it. It's just very, very grueling. But I insisted wherever we go that we have, uh, we meet with the gay newspaper and that we have a uh, community meeting with the local police department and the gay community on men as victims of serial killers. And it really opened up the eyes of a lot of police officers uh, to, you know, to really take a look at men that are missing. If it was a woman that disappeared and you had women prostitutes, Forget it. He never would have been set free. There would have been protests up and down. But because they were gay men, then there were people who did not care. 
So today it's very important. They treat, they treat a missing person like a missing person. They don't care what your race, religion, or your sexual preference is. A person is a person. So yes, things have changed. Things have changed. Immensely in the perception of and, men as being victims of serial killers. I mean, the only serial killer uh, back when like Free to Kill came out was we had John Wayne Gacy, but then again, all the bodies were found underneath the house. Then you had Dahmer. They were all found in one location. You know, and your book was supposedly at Dahmer's place too, right? There wasn't any reason. Yes, I remember when I got a phone call from the Milwaukee police and saying that they found a copy of Free to Kill underlined. This is a hard copy, underlined in his room. Uh, and I said, what did he underline? The part where you put in there how he took Placidil and he drugged the beers and gave it to the victims. From that moment on, I realized whatever true crime books I'm at, I'm not going to give you a recipe on how to drug and kill somebody. Wow. You know, and that really scared me. And they wanted me to look at pictures of Dahmer and everything to see if any of the victims, if I recognize any of the victims from the Eiler thing. And uh, I was brought down to Milwaukee. I came down to Milwaukee, met with the police, and there was no connection at all. But the fact that they showed me the copy of Free to Kill, it, it just incredible. scared me as an author completely. It's crazy. And there still are some gays here. There was a guy, MacArthur, in Toronto who got caught. He was a gay predator. So there's definitely craft in L.A. So there's definitely, that's definitely a subset of these serial killers is the kind of gay motivated serial killer. I mean, looking back, how I mean, I guess things have changed in the culture, but like, would you have any kind of views on how you would change things or do things differently, maybe? Um, now? You mean now? Or? Yeah, just looking back. Looking back, it's been like 30 looking back, years. Looking back, the police should have definitely said, okay, these young men are missing. Uh, we should take a look with similar. I mean, a coroner is what really put together the crime pattern by the way they were stabbed and uh, other sexual things uh, and examining their bodies and realized that perhaps they were sodomized and things like that and saw something that was... To, you know, very similar. I mean, we, if it wasn't for the gay newspaper in Chicago, a couple of the bodies would not have been identified uh, because the coroner said they're unidentified. Can your court artist do a sketch? And I remember I sent Andy Austin down there and she sketched the bodies, you know, the faces with the eyes open. And they put them in the gay newspaper in Chicago, the Windy City Times. And over the weekend, three bodies were identified as from Chicago. I mean, the fact that the police didn't even, it wasn't even mentioned in there, but because Bill Williams, I contacted him with my theory that it's a gay serial killer, he believed in me. And he ran those pictures, uh, you know, the photograph, the artist sketches, and it just came so strange that it was three men, but still the station wasn't gonna go for it because it was gay men, or if they were women, it would have been a completely different story. Different, Things right. have changed, yes. And did you, I mean, it's what's odd too, is the FBI didn't get involved in this case at all. It was a state case, is that correct? Or did the FBI? Yes, that is completely correct. That is completely correct. Um, they didn't have ways back in 1983 and 80, 84 and 86. Uh, one state with Indiana, am I right, Scott? One state like Indiana had their murders. Illinois had theirs. Kankakee had theirs. And... You know, can't you keep no, nobody, nobody wanted, nobody wanted to work together. 
That, yeah. that was the, I think that was one of the biggest problems. But now with the computers and with the, you know, they can get things done and then the DNA and crime scene analysis. Bill, they got the crime scene stuff from Lowell, Indiana by rolling the tires on butcher block paper with ink on the tires. Hello, uh, the boot prints. Uh, I don't know if they still do this, Scott, but on uh, Daniel Scott, uh, on um, Ralph Calise, they poured plaster into the footprints and they had the plaster plaster prints, you know, because when the book came out, the cops gave me a copy of the plaster print. They mm-hmm. gave me the plaster print for my wall that I have in my apartment. And I was like, oh my gosh, now it's just so, they do it lasers and everything and it's phenomenal. And things have changed with the crime scene analysis and that helps a great deal for getting evidence. And that's what we need. Right, and Scott's a perfect example of this updating computerized forensic systems where certain things that could be solved that really weren't solved back then. And you, I think you said that Eiler was smart because he was deliberately crossing jurisdictional lines, right? Yeah, it was. I don't think he. I don't think he really went. When you, I, I went to the FBI Academy on uh, serial killers. Okay, uh, Quantico. I did go to a conference on that. And I learned that there were three types. The organ, there's the organized and just two types: organized and disorganized serial killer. And he's a disorganized serial killer, so he gets a rage inside of him, uh, a rage and a desire to commit something and to do something with someone. And he was very much into uh, S and M, into handcuffing and drugging the victim. And he would live out in his mind. He would just travel for hours with a victim. And then he would wake them up in a deserted area and then kill them. And then he would not dig a grave or anything. He would throw the body out in the woods and let the animals take care of it. Just covered up with leaves and branches and whatever is in the garbage area and allow that to be itself. And, but he would always take all identification. And to that, that's a token. That's a remembrance of who your victim is. That's why he knew who his victims were because he had their driver's license or an ID card. That's why he was able to identify them. But apparently on Scott's cases, they didn't have an ID on them. So that's why we didn't know who those victims are. And there's another one in Chicago. So we have three unidentified. Four. But now we only have two, thanks to Scott. No, there's there's still four out there. No, there's four out there's, there? There's, there's a Jasper County one. There's... Uh, the other one of mine, Ford County, Illinois, and I believe you said uh, Lake County, Illinois. Yeah. And were you able to ascertain the age of the one victim you identified? Uh, Johnny? Yeah. Um, he was born in 64, so that would put him at what now? 80, 20, something, 80, 25? Well, so, I mean, yeah, so there, yeah, um, we're at about 35 minutes. Is there anything you guys would like to add? Anybody yeah, I want to say uh, Free to Kill is all available on uh, audio, audio as audio well book. as ebooks. And uh, in 2019, I updated Free to Kill on the ebooks. So we have an update of that. Uh, so, you know, uh, audible.com. 
Right. So there's your book, Amazon, Kindle, audiobook, hardcover as well. So Yep. So and we had professional we had professional actors do the reading. So nice. we have people that do the characters. So uh it's Great. interesting. And uh they have you know, it's a gift that keeps on giving, as I told Annie Schwartz. Every month, every three months I get a check from my books. So it's nice. part of my will, I'm giving it to charity. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to add, Scott? Uh, at, at this point, um, you know, I, I, I would urge as many people that are listening to, to get their DNA uploaded into in, into one of the, the systems because it may not, uh, well, these may not directly affect them, but yet it could be somebody that's related to them down the line uh, that, you know, that's how we solve these cases. A lot of people are afraid that the police are going to use this against them. If they don't have anything to hide, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing they're going to use against you. Right. I think that's how they, the, the orange, whatever rapist here in California got caught is through this yeah. kind of DNA analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Really fascinating. Thanks for the update and everything. And I really appreciate both of you being here, Scott McCord and Geraldine Kolarek. And again, the book, the title of the book and look for the movie is Freed to Kill, the true story of serial murderer, Larry Eiler by Gerald Lynn Colerick. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. Bill, when the movie comes out, we're going to have you do an interview with Roland Emmerich. Awesome. Okay. I would love to. That'd be great. Keep me in mind. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay there. Stay there. All right. That was